Alrighty, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Face and Breakdown. I've got myself, as usual, Tavis Killian, and the illustrious and smart periodical author himself, Evan Olson. Uh, any more compliments? <laughs> I think it would feel pretty good here. Yeah, check back next month, all right? <laughs> so we've got a bunch of stories for you for the months of September, and I, I guess that's about all you need to know, so we're going to jump right into it, starting off with right where we're from, DJ Niobrera here in Colorado. So first of all, there was actually a report conducted between one of my professors, Peter Maniloff here at Mines, well, ex-professors, I'm graduated now, and a professor at Boulder, and they teamed up to determine the economic results of setbacks. At present, Colorado law requires that oil and gas setbacks are anywhere between 500 and 1,000 feet. Once a setback reaches 1,500 feet, Colorado has the potential to lose $500 million in annual resource revenues roughly 0.1% of the state's gross domestic product. Well, if that doesn't seem too bad, think about the 2,500 setback people are pushing for. If you bump that number to 25, that loss climbs from 500 million to 4.5 billion as more and more land becomes inaccessible. The talk of the new setback has become a hot topic as the newly appointed COGCC board members are heavily considering implementing one themselves. And that really links us directly to the next story where Chairman Jeff Robbins told the Colorado Sun that there was support for extended setbacks from the COGCC committee themselves. The shift in policy is supposed to be a strong message to operators and encouraging them to check in with the commission and local governments early on to ensure that their drilling plans are doable. Former Director Dave Neslin expressed his concern at the commission hearing by saying the setback will, quote, exponentially increase the amount of land that is off-limits to oil and gas developments, end quote. These are the same concerns that many expressed back in 2018 when voting on Proposition 112. Many people in the industry share this same sentiment. Dan Haley, the president of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, said, quote, The setback recommendation is completely arbitrary, not based on science, and is being made without any legitimate consideration of its impacts on working families across our state. And I gotta say, I agree with him, especially looking back at that report conducted between Mines and Boulder. Yeah, and it's um, taking this even one step forward, we've actually got a lawsuit on our hands. Earlier in September, September 15th to be exact, Extraction Oil and Gas has filed suit against the city and county of Broomfield, saying that officials are infringing on the company's existing operating rights in an attempt to shut down operations. In a complaint filed by the U.S. District Court of Colorado, Extraction claims that Broomfield City Council is bowing to the demands of local residents that oppose all oil and gas operations in the area by using its regulatory powers to target the company. Now, how are they going to do that? Well, Extraction is claiming that the recently passed Municipal Noise Ordinance, which caps nighttime noises at, let's see, 40 decibels, it's targeting the company because it made it clear in years past of public outreach that extraction cannot shut down its operations at night and remain economically viable. So long story short, extraction is suing the city of Broomfield because Broomfield's saying that, hey, you know, if you are above 40 decibels at, you know, nighttime, you got to shut down your operations. And I don't know if you guys have ever been near an active drilling rig or even an active, you know, work oversight it's a lot louder than 40 decibels. Yeah, and I wonder what it is. Is that a measurement from the home? Like if I can hear it from somewhere else and it's 40 decibels? I, I mean, I, I don't know the law. I would assume it's fuzzy, and it's just a whole mess of a situation already. 
granted, it kind of seems like they're taking advantage of this, you know, Proposition 112, or maybe it was 114. I'll have to look into that. Whichever... Yeah, there's so many of them anyways. They can't get <laughs> mad at your confusion. Um, that allows each city to make their own regulations on oil and gas. Now, granted, this one isn't necessarily targeted at oil and gas, but the end result does appear to be targeting, you know, a specific operator in the area. And I mean, good on good on extraction. You know, they've had so many years of public outreach and a, a good dialogue with the community trying to work with them. They've put up noise barriers. They put up sound barriers. You know, they've limited noise and sound at night. And yet, you know, oh, new regulation, 40 decibels. Get on out of here. It's never enough. All right, to give you guys uh, an idea of kind of how ridiculous this is, a 40 decibel in levels of noise is it's considered soft. 40 decibels is about as loud as a quiet library. And since each 10 decibel increase is considered double the level of noise heard by the ear and actually 10 times the intensity, moderate rainfall at a mere 50 decibels is actually twice as loud and 10 times as intense. And normal conversation at 60 decibels is four times louder. By the city of Broomfield standards, I can't have a conversation with Tavis at night, apparently. I mean, I'm all for a good and wholesome, restful night of sleep, but at 40 decibels when talking is 60, that, that seems a bit absurd to me, but who am I to say I am not there? Yeah, I mean, even lawnmowers are clocking in at 90. You know, <laughs> yeah, it would be pretty annoying if your neighbor was mowing the lawn at night, but that's over 32 times as loud and 100,000 times as intense as what's currently allowed. Who knows? We'll see if they update that requirement and we'll keep you guys updated on the status of this lawsuit. But that is it for Colorado. And next up, we are headed to North Dakota. North Dakota. Is that offensive? I don't know. I don't think we're alienating too many users, but... North Dakota's oil and gas industry has already spent $16 billion to get its current gas capture capacity, but it is still shy of meeting projected needs almost two decades down the road. It is estimated that it will need an additional $18 billion in order to further expand the gas capture capacity. The volume of the projected peak, 5.3 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas, as compared to the current record of 2.8 billion cubic feet per day. The state has reported a gas capture rate of 92% as of late, but this is largely a result of COVID and a decreased demand. If demand were to increase, the state would struggle to keep up with the amount of gas produced. This is why new gas capture infrastructure is going to be vital, not to mention expensive, over the next two decades. But hey, I mean, to me, at least they're supporting jobs, they're supporting the industry, and they're trying to move forward with green initiatives. You know, this is, is going to help towards, you know, uh, carbon emission standards, and at the same time, still supporting jobs, still supporting state revenues. I mean, to me, it's a win-win situation here. Right. I love it. I mean, you get to support the industry, and if your biggest problem is uh, we need to produce more and we don't have the capacity, then that's not too bad. Not too bad. Speaking of production, North Dakota reported 1.04 million barrels of crude oil per day production for July and nearly 2.1 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas production. This is a 16.5% increase on the month in production for oil and gas. Even though this breach of 1 million barrels per day is nice, it is predicted to just be temporary and influenced by the temporarily by the temporary price increases. It takes roughly 70 new wells per month to sustain production in the range of 1.25 million barrels per day. Compare this to the 12 
37 and 59 new wells drilled in May through July, respectively. It seems that it is possible to achieve this rate of production, but, you know, we need that increase in drilling. In July, it was reported that there were 3,700 inactive wells, representing a little more than a quarter of a million barrels. Most organizations, besides us here at Rare Petro, predict that the pre-COVID demand will not return until late 2022, so only time will tell if North Dakota can keep these production rates up. Hey, but good on them. Let's see how it goes further down the road, because I know we took a couple hits in the month of September in terms of pricing, but that is it for North Dakota. Next up, we've got another big gas field, the Marcellus of Pennsylvania. Starting off, we got some metrics from Pennsylvania's DEP, that is the Department of Environmental Protection, and they just released their 2019 Oil and Gas Annual Report, which highlights accomplishments of the past and goals for the future. So 2019, good year, I remember it fondly. Pennsylvania was the second largest natural gas producer in the U.S., only lagging behind Texas, actually, producing just shy of 7 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. This is the largest production of natural gas in a single year for the state. On the downside, the DEP was forced to issue 83 notices of violation to unconventional operators for not reporting production data. But that's not too bad when compared to the conventional operators who racked up 3,363 of the same notices. Oof. Yeah. This resulted in $4 million in fines, which was good for the DEP but bad for the operators. But it did prompt about 500 of those operators to use the DEP's online electric oil and gas applications. In other good metrics, 90% of the produced fluids were either reused or recycled. So all around good responsibility from Pennsylvania. They're doing things safely. They're doing things well. And it looks like they're making a transition to online forms. Business as usual. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, I guarantee you those 300, 363 notices, that's going to go way down in the next few years. Oh, yeah. I, I don't want to pay $4 million in fines. I don't know anyone else who does. No kidding. And it seems like since they made that online system, it's going to be a lot easier to avoid those kind of penalties with up-to-date exactly. reporting standards, et cetera, et cetera. But moving on, let's talk about some election information. So, I'm sure you guys are the same as me. As the election draws near, voters are asking for presidential policies to be even more clear. Biden has separated himself from the party's Green New Deal, but his running mate is a Californian who has vowed to ban hydraulic fracturing. This middle-of-the-road stance is unsettling for many voters, especially those in swing states that produce oil and gas such as, well, Ohio and Pennsylvania. Anti-hydraulic fracturing claims have scared these regions and even those that don't produce any form of hydrocarbons. Domestic energy independence seemed to be important to voters, and Trump has played off that so far. Biden has made claims ranging from no banning to ending fossil fuels to, oh, I'm not going to ban anything in the near future. The debates definitely hold potential for Biden to clear his stance, but more pressing issues may take precedence. Yeah, and so uh, that's a fault on my part. He's speaking in the future tense of the debates, although they've already happened, and what we saw is that not a lot of talk happened in the presidential, and in terms of this content in the vice presidential, Kamala Harris said, I promise Joe Biden will not ban fracking, so we will just have to see what happens to hydraulic fracturing in the next few months. I would love for them to just have some online platform where they say, these are what I believe, and I'm not going to change them. Man, consistency would be nice, huh? We're going to continue this topic of fracking, but we're going to move it on over to the Powder River Basin in Wyoming. So this next topic, no more fracking, no more funding. 
A study from the Petroleum Association of Wyoming and the API highlights just how devastating a federal land ban would be. The key takeaway is that 33,000 jobs could be lost in Wyoming alone, along with $640 million in state revenue. Wyoming is a little larger than 60 million surface acres, and nearly half is considered federal land. Currently, the BLM auctions off parcels of this land roughly four times a year, bringing in a ton of financial returns to the state. Lease sales generated $117 million for the state in 2019 alone between royalties and direct sales returns. If future administration was to outlaw the sale of this land, it would need to fully understand how states like Wyoming would perceive that and the resulting voting response. And then I always forget just how much federal land there is until you put numbers to it like this. Yeah, look at that. 60 million surface acres and about half of that is federal land. That's incredible. Oh, yeah, I'd consider that significant. But moving on, we've got other things going on in the Powder River Basin, thankfully. But the Trump administration is attempting to push an executive order to battle the effects of COVID on energy infrastructure specifically. The proposed order would rush some of these projects in an attempt to stoke economic development that has slumped amid the pandemic. In Wyoming, three projects were targeted. The Converse County Oil and Gas Project, the recently approved Mineta Divide Natural Gas and Oil Development Project, and the Wyoming Pipeline Corridor Initiative. Under Trump's order, these projects would be able to push through restrictions enacted by NEPA or the Endangered Species Act, further accelerating their development. Many have welcomed the order and looked on with eagerness as these projects proceed, but still others are upset as they feel this is not a warranted response from the threat of COVID. Some fear this will prompt corner-cutting and rushed environmental impact statements. Those in support of this executive order have replied to the aforementioned concerns by saying these projects have been in development and review for the better part of a decade, so the term fast-tracked may not be fully applicable. I'm a little nervous about this just because what we've seen with the Dakota Access Pipeline here in recent months where they've the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has had to go back and reevaluate all these statements just because someone down the road said, you know, that you didn't do the, the proper environmental impact studies. So I'm worried that, you know, even if the term fast tracking isn't fully applicable, I'm nervous that this is just going to put a target on these projects back in the future. Oh, yeah. Of all the projects in the state, I mean, granted, those are the three largest, but they're going to get even more attention if stuff like this continues. But that's enough of the Cowboys up there. Let's go to the Cowboys in Texas. First off, we've got some big money coming into some new projects. So, as oil prices continue to see slight improvements, more and more people are attempting to capitalize on projects in the Permian. U.S. Energy Development Corp. has decided to develop $40 million worth of additional Permian assets to pair with the properties that it already acquired in 2019. This is a decent indication that some operations are looking to take a larger share of what is considered one of the U.S.'s greatest oil field assets. Even so, a spokesperson for the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association mentioned that even though people are sinking money into future projects, quote, the geology has not changed and the longer-term value of those resources has not changed. I don't know. That sounds a little pessimistic to me, but I can see it argued both ways, right? It's already pretty well established. I totally agree with you on the fact that it, it, it does seem pessimistic because kind of like you said, it is considered one of U.S.'s greatest oil field assets. And if you can have oil prices hovering in, say, you know, the $45 range, why not pursue something like this? If you've got the, the resources to pursue something like this, go for it. I don't know if we've ever done a basin breakdown without talking about pipelines in Texas, so let's keep that trend going. 
The Permian used to be a hotspot for massive amounts of flaring and really needless wastes of energy. In order to combat that, a massive network of pipelines has been constructed to better transport natural gas to facilities that can make use of it. Now, the Permian produces only about 4 million barrels of oil per day, leaving an unused capacity of about 3 million barrels. Although gas producers are joyous and appreciative of the extra pipeline space, pipeline operators are hurting from the decreased demand for their infrastructure. Companies like Enterprise Product Partners are delaying or really even fully scraping plans that they had to increase pipeline capacity in certain regions. With little incentive to construct new conduits, it could be time for mergers between many midstream companies in the area to make the most of what the Permian already has. Even further down the supply chain, fuel refineries are not able to scoop up cheap crude that results from a congestion of these once full pipelines. At the very least, gas producers don't have to beg the markets to take their shipments anymore. It's now the other way around. Man, Kevin, I'll tell you what, I could talk about this for a full 15 minutes. Oh, wait, I think we just did. We already have. <laughs> Go to rarepetro.com. Kevin wrote a fantastic periodical regarding, well, not necessarily this pipeline thing, but it does play into the way the price spread works out between Brent and WTI. So go to rarepetro.com to the periodical section, read it there, or listen to the podcast that we uploaded Friday on October the 16th. Absolutely. Next, the Colombians are going drill crazy in Texas. In a joint venture with Occidental Petroleum, majority state-owned Colombian oil company Echo Petrol SA plans to drill 100 wells by the end of 2021. The location of these wells is likely to be concentrated within the Permian Basin. Although the company drilled 22 wells between November 2019 and June 2020, production slowed during the pandemic and operations were put on pause. Now, things are looking busy for the Colombian company. The primary reason listed for getting involved in this area is Colombia's desire to diversify their portfolio. Historically, they've dealt with a lot of heavy crudes, and the oil they plan to get from Texas will likely be around 40 API. Although it may seem absurd to drill this many wells, Echo Petrol's customer base is Asia, with China being the largest specific customer, with expansions into India and South Korea markets in the works. So it sounds like they've got people to buy, so they might as well drill. I mean, absolutely. If you have an opportunity like that, kind of like we just mentioned, just go for it. I mean, prices are reduced now. You know, you can get up property and start projects for, for fairly cheap in comparison to, say, what they were in, you know, maybe 2014, 15. I mean, heck, even earlier in 2019. Um, and... By the sounds of it, it's going to create some American jobs here, too. So There we go. It's a win-win. And I imagine they've worked it out, and it's economically viable. So if they can do it, maybe other people, like we previously mentioned, can do it, too. But now to the less loved but always liked, no, other way around, less liked but always loved other child, the Eagleford. Looks like we've got some interest. Although most of the talk for Texas operations has been centered around the Permian Basin, ConocoPhillips says that the Eagleford will be their chief focus in terms of domestic and unconventional plays. In fact, they already have more rigs placed in the Eagleford than they do in the Permian at 4. Well, 4 of 12, that's not too bad. Their current argument revolves around the lower GOR of the Eagleford as compared to the Permian and the lower cost of supply than the, comparatively, more active Permian Basin. Although numbers are projected to grow as more and more wells are completed, ConocoPhillips was able to produce 162,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day from the Eagleford in Q2 of 2020. Comparatively, this is a little more than three times more than the wells in both the Permian and in the Bakken. 
Although they have been criticized to be slow moving and acting on either plans in the Permian or Eagleford, the company maintained that they want to do things correctly and remain in, quote, durable position. I like that. I like that. It seems like instead of just going for max production, which would be a good way to shoot yourself in the foot right now, they're actually taking things into consideration, like the GOR. And- the, the lower cost to supply to me is what really I think is smart because they're seeing so many different operators abandon that area that there's still companies that are headquartered there, that are based there, that are still wanting to do work in the Eagleford. If that's your go-to, if that's your bread and butter, then you're not going to ditch it and abandon it. And ConocoPhillips is saying, you know, it's going to be cheaper to operate here. Let's just give it a go. And clearly they've done some studies on this and good for them for, you know, keeping up with, you know, another basin here in the United States. But that wraps it up for all of Texas. And next up, we've got stories from, well, I guess we keep it. Can we keep it cowboy themed? If Can we say that? Might as well. Yeah. I'd, I'd say you could. So with the problem we've become all too familiar with at this point, the local government is struggling. So collections for the state treasury of Oklahoma are 5% lower than they were in the month of August, primarily because of the low price and decreased production of oil and gas. This is the fifth month since February that total receipts were lower than the same month in the year prior. Tax collections received from oil and gas production were $35 million less than one year prior. This marks the 12th consecutive month that gross production's receipts were less than the same month of the prior year. Altogether, this means that oil and gas tax receipts have dropped by more than $430 million in the past year alone, and it is likely that the lack of returns will ripple into other sectors of the economy. Hopefully, the amount of money hemorrhaged will slow in the upcoming months since prices increased to $42.34 for parts of August, but that likely won't be seen until a few months past September, and if prices continue the way they do in the present... I don't see a lot of good coming out of it for Oklahoma's. Yeah, that's, that's rough. $430 million of lost revenue just from oil and gas production decreases. And that's going to get worse here. Well, maybe not worse into the future, but those numbers aren't going to look much better until kind of like you said, we see oil until at least what the 45 to $50 range. I mean, that's really where we need those prices to go in order for Oklahoma to be successful. But A little bit of brighter news. We've got a merger alert here in Oklahoma. Devon Energy and WPX Energy have decided it would be in their mutual best interest to combine their efforts. Both of the Oklahoma-based companies are claiming that this is a, quote, merger of equals, end quote, and they believe it will create a new leading unconventional oil producer. This combination makes the two Oklahoma-based companies a heavy hitter in the Texas-based Delaware Basin with a combined 400,000 acres of coverage. The all-stock transaction is expected to close sometime within the first quarter of 2021. The new organization does plan to achieve $575 million of cash flow improvements by the end of the year through decisions that are focused less on production growth. The merger pools $1.7 billion in cash along with $3 billion in undrawn credit capacity. This just seems like a win-win for both companies. Oh, yeah. They're essentially a a new major at this point. Granted, they were huge before. Now they're just bigger together. Yeah, so it'll be interesting how the the different company dynamics come together. You know, when you try and put two people under one roof that have had different mentalities all along. Granted, I know that a big mentality is, you know, let's let's maximize profits and, and maximize production. So it'll be interesting to see how those dynamics shift and, you know, do you want to place bets on what the new name's going to be? Uh, 
Depex? Devin PX? I have no idea. I just know that probably some people are going to get let go, and I might be sweating under the collar a bit if I was the least productive in that company. Bad news. And to follow up, I've got some more bad news. So I don't know how long it's been since we talked about them, but Chesapeake Energy, remember them? They went bankrupt a while back. What was that? June. And they've just made the headlines once again. This company is going through another round of layoffs of 200 employees or 15% of the remaining workforce. Important remaining workforce. This is their, I believe, third round of layoffs. Mm -hmm. While this is not the news that anyone wants to be put on the map for, it is news nonetheless and shows that the company is doing its best to pull itself from bankruptcy. Unfortunately, they are doing so at the cost of their employees in the name of cost-cutting. The layoffs are mainly at the headquarters in Oklahoma, and CEO Doug Lawler blames these layoffs on the current oil prices. The letter sent from Lawler himself read, quote, While Chesapeake is not alone in reducing staff during the challenging time, we recognize that does not dampen the disappointment in receiving the news. Yeah, well, duh. <laughs> I, who, who wants to have news that, oh, oh 200 more people are getting laid off? But yeah, I, but you got to say something, right? Yeah. Especially if you're the CEO. And it, I think that's just a sign of 2020. It's a sign of depressed oil prices. And, I mean, fingers crossed that these guys can at least pull through and, you know, get out of their bankruptcy. And then, who knows, maybe down the road they can bring some of those employees back. Or maybe, who knows, this is an, an opportunity for maybe a larger company to come scoop these guys up and save the remaining employees. So, And I hate to end this podcast on bad news, but we will not end this podcast on bad news, baby. Next up, we've got California where things are getting wackier. And speaking of wacky, we're starting off talking about some Californian wacky tobacco. It's the wacky tobacco, man. So in late September, fires continued to rage and spread across California. At first, Pacific Gas and Electric warned that approximately 21,000 customers and three counties would lose power. This was not a threat, it was a promise. But after a forecast for windy and warm weather was released, that estimate quickly jumped into 91,000 people in 16 counties. Still, this is comparatively much more targeted approach than the general blackouts that issued that denied access to 2 million customers previously. PG&E was responsible for the 2018 fire that destroyed plenty of the Sierra foothills and killed 85 people, and people are still pretty upset with environmental policy in California, especially that revolving around oil and gas. But no matter how PG&E executes its balancing act of power denial, it doesn't change the fact that the fires quickly approached the Emerald Triangle. The Emerald Triangle is a three-county corner of Northern California that some estimate is the largest cannabis-producing region. People who were advised to evacuate stayed as their entire livelihoods were on the line. Each of the 40 legal farms in the area has half a million dollars worth of crops that are within days of harvesting, with hundreds of other legal growing areas toting smaller, yet significant numbers as well. The largest crop is estimated to be worth $20 million, but either way, the firefighters have made it clear they will not die trying to rescue the people who chose to stay, and a lot of people are actually saying that these wildfires are a result of oil and gas operations and, well, cars that burn gasoline. It's it's unfortunate to see the, you know, a, a natural wildfire is being blamed on an industry that has provided so much to the state. But, you know, it's kind of just a broken record. That's all we hear about California. And, um, you know, thoughts and prayers go out to everyone down there, everyone affected. But um, let's hope that they can pull through this one. Moving on to something maybe a little bit more relevant to this podcast is the Gavin Newsom debacle. Although much of the anger related to the forest fires ravaging western parts of the United States is directed towards Trump, 
Californians are becoming increasingly suspicious of Governor Gavin Newsom's climate policies. Although Newsom is rather vocal of his support of climate science, Californians are wondering why he continues to approve new drilling permits. Quote, He's getting caught in this debate on whether climate change is real, which is odd to us, Alexander Nagy, the California director at Food and Water Watch, told Power Up. We know it's real. We need to address the root cause, and he's avoiding it, end quote. Although Newsom promised to ban hydraulic fracturing, that has yet to be done. The state has issued 190% more drilling permits in the first half of 2020 than in the first six months Newsom was in office. That's a total of 2,691 permits. This came just prior to his announcement of the goal to ban the sales of non-electric vehicles by 2035. This just seems like it's back and forth like a game of ping pong. Here. Right. It shows you, I guess, just how far lip service can get you, though, because I would have agreed with the Californians for, well, different perspective on it, but saying the same thing, saying that he wants the death of oil and gas. But if he's approving 190% more drilling permits and half one of 2020 as compared to the first six months he was in office, I don't know. could be a targeted statistic but yeah and even let's take that one step further he's allowing all these permits but then he wants non-electric vehicles out of the state by 2035 it's just very confusing to me a little bit confusing indeed but one thing i am certain of is that this is the end of the episode we've hit our 30 minute time limit hopefully we've brought you a little bit of news that forced you to be a little bit more in the know and Kevin, again, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tavis, as always. Yeah, and so you can go to rarepetro.com to find plenty of periodicals, other podcasts, the services that we offer. We do more than just news, you know. We can be engineers for you as well. So go to rarepetro.com, find out what we can do for you, and take advantage of it. Because if you're not learning now, well then, hell, you're falling behind. But thanks for joining us, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Take care, everybody.